0: Alright, so we are here for our second series on Covenant Theology. And I just want to kind of remind you of what our goal is, uh, the purpose of this study. I've entitled it A Brief Overview of Covenant Theology because it is going to be brief. It's going to be a perspective that is um, big picture perspective. So we're not going to get into a whole lot of details, but I want to kind of just give you a basic understanding of of covenant theology, in case you've never heard of it, in case you've never studied it before, and kind of just whet your appetite um, for where it is taught in Scripture and specifically why it matters. Our goal simply in this study is to understand what it is, to see where it's taught in Scripture, and to grasp why it matters. Why would we spend eight weeks... To study covenant theology? What difference does it make in my life? What difference does it make in my Christian walk? What difference does it make in the church? Well, I hope to answer those questions for you, and if nothing else, again, wet your appetite so that you uh, can study these things further and you can understand and grasp the importance of doctrine uh, in accordance with our faith and practice. So last week, just to briefly recap what we covered Uh, Covenant theology, we consider that covenant theology seeks to understand the big picture, the the major theme or motif of Scripture from beginning to end. Covenant theology looks at the trees, which are going to be the various covenants in Scripture, in order to understand the forest, which is, of course, a unified plan and the purpose of God from beginning to end of revelation excuse me beginning of genesis to revelation and even beyond so this unified purpose and plan of god identifying it and seeing how that thread is woven throughout all of scripture is kind of the perspective that covenant theology seeks to take in the interpretation of scripture so last week we also considered just basically what is a covenant I really settled on the children's catechism answer. A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. Very, very basic. But it gets at, you know, kind of uh, the heart of, of what is common with every covenant. I talked about how a covenant defines the parameters of a particular relationship. It's the DTR, right? Define the relationship. It lets us know, again, whether it's two parties. Uh, two, two people being um, coming together in marriage, a marriage covenant, whether it's the you know, homeowners association covenant, the neighborhood covenant, whether it's a covenant with God, it, it defines the relationship. It gives promises and oaths and entails stipulations and obli- obligations and sometimes blessings and cursings upon uh, obedience or disobedience. And that's what we kind of considered last week. And we move from there to to think about how God in Scripture has chosen to relate to us by way of a covenant. He stoops to our level. Comes down and gives us earthly signs and symbols to communicate His promises. To assure us that He will do what He says He's going to do. And so in a covenant... We always know where we stand. We're going to consider this more in a moment. But that's how God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. And I'm going to argue particularly in the next two sessions that every human being, without exception, is in covenant with God. And that is the only way He relates to us. Always within the parameters of a covenant. So it's important that we understand covenant theology and the covenant of course that we are in and that our neighbors are in so that we understand basically what's going to happen how God is going to deal with people in particular to the covenant that they are in and then I argued that this is an important study just on the very basis of how frequently it appears in Scripture how uh, so many major figures in Scripture uh, God entered into a covenant with, and these covenants included other people. And then, of course, our salvation is framed in covenantal terms. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, we're told, over and over again in the book of Hebrews. And, you know, he offers the cup of the Lord's Supper and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So we ought to understand what these things mean. So that's what we covered last week. Today, I guess before we move to today, are there any questions, any clarifications before we move on? Anything on last week that stuck with you that you want to talk about? So today, I want two theses, basically, I have for you. Uh, I don't know why they're both number one. Oops, sorry about that. I thought I double-checked that. Powerpoint. (laughs) The covenant, this is picking up and kind of expanding upon last week. The first thing we're going to consider is a covenant is Scripture's own framework for understanding God's purposes in redemptive history. To put it another way. The covenant is how God teaches us to read the Bible. The Bible itself teaches us to read the Bible through covenantal lenses. That's what I'm going to argue briefly, point number one. Secondly, we're going to consider approaching Scripture in this way. Reading Scripture um, in a covenantal way gives us the proper context for understanding the most important issues in the Christian life. So those are, that's what we're going to consider today. Um, and then we'll move on from there to look more specifically at the covenants themselves uh, two weeks from today. All right. So remember last week we opened with by considering Titus 1, 1 through 3. And Paul himself opens that letter, talks about he's a servant of God, he's an apostle of Christ for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. But notice what he says here, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And we consider, okay, this hope of eternal life, which appears before time began, which was promised before time began, which means, I argue, and we're going to get into this, the Father making a promise to the Son, that's where this promise was made, because who else existed before the ages began, right? God promised it before the ages began, and then manifested it, but this promise considers the hope entails the hope of eternal life. This is the big picture of covenant theology. Now I want you to keep this in mind, we broke this down last week, but keep this in mind and listen to Ephesians two, eleven through thirteen if I could have a volunteer open their Bibles and read that for us, please. Ephesians two eleven through thirteen. Volunteer? Thank you, John. Thank you. Paul is, of course, talking to these Gentiles, talking in this great section of you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, right, with the great love which He showed us even while we were dead, He made us alive in Christ. And he goes on to talk about their relation to the Jews, to the Israelites, And, uh, of course, he goes on to say at the end of chapter 2 that we are fellow citizens and saints, that God has brought two parties, two um, peoples together and made them one in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike. He reconciled and um, killed the hostility between them. But notice this phrase that he uses talks about Israel, and he says, you were not part of Israel, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. I want to focus in on that. Covenants is plural, but promise is singular. Multiple covenants, but one promise. Again, we're talking about how the Bible teaches us to read Scripture through the lens of the covenant. God's covenants, plural with Israel, reveal His promise. His one promise. And what is that promise? I'm going to argue it's the promise of eternal life that Paul mentions in Titus 1.2. Multiple covenants, but one promise. And what I'm trying to argue here is that this provides us with the interpretive key to the Old Testament. This is how the Apostle Paul read the Old Testament. When we ask, like, what's going on with all the stories in the Old Testament? What's going on with the strange and bizarre rituals and ceremonies and laws? Right? The book of Leviticus and things of that nature. we to talk about this more in a minute. But I'm arguing that this central one promise is the big picture motif. It is the theme. It is the one thread that unites everything so that we can make sense of these things because they're serving the promise. Does that make sense? And we'll say as well, we're going to get into this, but this distinguishes us from our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, When we talk about multiple covenants but one promise. Again, we'll get into it, but suffice to say, uh, Baptists look at the covenants as um, serving the one promise. uh, While Presbyterians tend to look at each and every covenant as the promise itself in various forms. But we will get into that. Considering more. Covenants of promise. The Old Testament then prepares us for this promise. It prepares us for the gospel. There's an illustration. It's not original to me, but this is the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. when they were, I don't know, renovating it or doing whatever a few years ago. And as you see, this picture reveals it's Got scaffolding all over it. I think it's a helpful analogy for thinking about this phrase covenants of promise. Scaffolding upholds and supports the structure while it's under construction. Whoops. Right? It it supports the building itself until the work is completed. That's what I'm arguing regarding the covenants of promise. The covenants support the promise until the promise is revealed and the scaffolding falls away. And we see the gloriousness of the promise, which of course is the hope of eternal life founded on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So while the promise was being accomplished, The covenants uphold that and further its purpose until the promise is revealed. So the conclusion that I'm making here is the covenant is Scripture's own framework for understanding God's revelation and purposes in redemptive history. The covenant is the theme of that links the different stories, excuse me, the different books of the Bible, the different epics of the Bible, the different ages in redemptive history, the different covenants in redemptive history. It links them together to make them one so that we see the promise of God being furthered throughout redemptive history. And these this is the way in which we approach all of the things we read of in the Old Testament. How is God Furthering his promise. How is he accomplishing what he promised? Any questions here before we move on to number two. Pretty clear? Any comments? I told you guys I wasn't going to let you get off as easy as Kim did. But with a rainy yes, Josh. Absolutely, but what do you mean? Have to do with? I'm wondering um, that idea. What does it does it fall into the Presbyterian view of of covenant theology? No, we share. um, um, Confessional Reformed Baptists or Covenantal Baptists share the same categories: covenant of grace, covenant of works. We define the covenant of grace slightly differently. Um, But in its essence, we agree with Presbyterians on what it is. Um, And yes, it's very, very important to understanding um, not only covenant theology, but um, understanding just redemptive history in general. And that's, I think, probably what we'll look at either next time or the the time after. Uh, The covenant of grace, the covenant of works, how they appear in Scripture. I mean, we we could call it the promise of eternal life. I mean, cuz scripture doesn't use the phrase covenant of grace, uh, but we believe the concept is there, and it's essentially the promise of eternal life. So. Other questions? Well, let's go to number 2 now. Approaching scripture in this way, gives us a proper context for understanding the most important issues of the Christian life. Again, in other words, covenant theology is the Bible's own method for helping us properly interpret Scripture. The Bible's own method for helping us properly interpret Scripture. So, um, we talked about this last week, but I want to think about it a little bit more. Why does it matter Why is covenant theology important? Well, what is our relationship with God? Remember, we considered that a little bit last week, but let me throw some of these questions out at you. How do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm still saved tomorrow when I sin? What does God expect of me? Will God change his mind and his word tomorrow? How does my relationship with God affect my relationship to his people, the church, and the culture around me, the unbelievers in this world? This opens up kind of why covenant theology is important. Why it matters. Why it's important to read Scripture through the lens of the covenant. Let's use God's covenant with Israel as an example um, for those questions right there. That I argue are answered only when we look at Scripture within the covenant. Uh, Michael Horton says this. Because of God's covenant with Israel, the Israelites regarded themselves as a coalition of tribes committed not to nationalism or political aims, but as called out by God to belong to Him. Thus, the promissory character of the covenant provides life with a goal and history with a meaning. The covenant defined not just the relationship that Israel had with their God, But it defined their purpose in life. I should say their purpose as a nation. Our relationship with God in covenant provides us with objective, clear, unmistakable purpose in life. Israel wasn't called as a nation to nationalism, just to political gains, But they were called to belong to God specially. We too, our ultimate calling in life is to glorify God. Right? To serve Him. To obey Him. To worship Him. And the covenant provides us with that objective orientation in our lives. Following up on this, Old Testament scholar uh, Walter Eichrodt. With this God, men know exactly where they stand. An atmosphere of trust and security is created in which they find both the strength for a willing surrender to the will of God and joyful courage to grapple with the problems of life. So my point is that, again, the covenant is important. Covenant theology is important. Because it gives us purpose. It creates trust. God has made promises to us, like a marriage covenant. This covenant, this trust, provides us strength, particularly in times of difficulty. And it leads to joyful courage and joyful service in life. Again, I used the analogy last week of a marriage. When someone commits to you in marriage, they are giving themselves to you so that you can be assured of their love. It strengthens love. It strengthens the obligations that the parties have to each other. It gives a sense of security and comfort knowing this person has vowed to me. I have a sign of that on my finger. I have a contract that all, maybe not all, but that society at large is aware of. The public is aware of. This gives joy and strength and security and trust. And it orientates us in our lives. My life is now devoted to someone else and they are devoted to me. The same way when we approach Scripture and we approach our salvation through the lens of a covenant. That's why it's important to recognize the covenant. Second issue, why it matters. Why is it important to look at Scripture this way? What's the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Perhaps more blood has been spilt in church history over this question than almost anything else. (laughs) What is the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament? Have you ever noticed that the Old Testament sounds a lot like the health and wealth gospel? You wonder where they get it? You wonder why they talk on TV about sowing seeds, about God will bless you for your faith, why, God, why, why, why if you have enough faith you can do all these great things. And why if you're not, if you're struggling in life, if you're going through financial difficulty, it must be because you're not sowing your seeds, you're not giving to their ministry, you're not walking in obedience, you don't have enough faith, and if you just had enough faith you could do anything. The Old Testament is a health and wealth gospel. If you read it closely. That's where they get it from. In places like the end of Deuteronomy, it sounds as if every blessing of God depends upon our faithfulness. If you do this, I will bless you. Your, your flocks and your herds and your, your crops will overflow in abundance. The storehouses will be full of grain and wine. You will have children and children's children. You will have... Long life. You see this even in the Proverbs and the Psalms. But if you disobey, famine, cursing, trouble, I will cast you out. You will be barren. In the Old Testament, it is very much a health and wealth type of perspective. While other parts of Scripture seem to point to God's faithfulness. For the reasons that we are blessed, even despite our sin. Yes, but even, even some slivers in the Old Testament. Some mixed messages, if nothing else. I mean, just even looking at the fact that, for example, Abraham, you know, he was a worshiper of the sun and the moon. Uh, we read in Joshua and God appears to him and says, I'm going to love you. I'm going to make my covenant with you. I'm going to save you. I mean, there's nothing he did to deserve it and nothing he did to initiate it. So there's God's faithfulness there, but in other parts you see, of course, this emphasis on obedience. Couple this with what about the various laws and rituals in the Old Testament? Did I see a hand. Sorry, I'm seeing things. What about the various laws and rituals in the Old Testament? For a Christian right now, is eating shellfish? Shellfish—that's hard to say. <laughs> Sally collected seashells on the seashore. Is eating shellfish a sin? Leviticus nine eleven nine through twelve says so. What about mixing seeds in planting or mixing fabric in clothing? This is in the same section where it talks about homosexuality being a sin. How in the world can we say one is a sin but the other isn't? I mean, this is this is what people go to—skeptics, um, atheists, um, those who want to overthrow the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. This is where they go to. They go to the Book of Leviticus and they see. They say, "Look, Christian, you're so inconsistent." Look at your, the fabric of your clothes. Look at what you eat. You know? you're, you're saying one's a sin, but not, not the other? I'm arguing here that the covenant is the key to resolving these issues. We can't just pit one set of verses against another set of verses. You know, you hear that a lot in respect to the debate over God's sovereignty or man's free will. Uh, If you've ever discussed that with somebody, usually they'll have some verses and you can bring some verses. And a lot of times at the end of the day, they'll say, well, you have your verses and we have ours. So (sighs) who knows? Bible is consistent. The Bible is one message. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. We can't just... Pit verses against each other and say, we really don't know. I'm arguing here that covenant theology is the key to how the various parts of the Bible relate to one another. Viewing Scripture through the covenants reveals how the Bible is one central message. It is multiple covenants, one promise. And if we don't look at it this way, then we'll just use Scripture to serve the whims of our own preferences and assumptions, picking and choosing what we want. Like for example, um, there's a there's a passage in the Old Testament that talks about uh, don't make marks on your body like a tattoo. That's in the Old Testament. Does that apply to New Testament Christians? Well, if you're um, of the previous generation, you might say, absolutely it applies. Getting a tattoo is a sin. The Scripture says so. But if you'll notice, many young people nowadays, young Christians nowadays, have no problems with it. And they'll get like, you know, shalom on their arm. (laughs) I know a guy with the the five solas on his arms, you know, Um, how do we how do we resolve those those questions I'm arguing that the key to them is looking at the covenants. It is the covenant that gives us the key. The Old Testament is full of ceremonies it's full of rituals it's full of earthly distinctive laws, and laws that were health and wealth, brought blessing and cursing, because of the stipulations of that particular covenant. Because of the phase of redemptive history that that Israel was in and what God was doing to, to work towards the one promise. And we've got to view it in light of that, so, so all of these distinctive aspects serve the one promise. But they weren't the promise itself. They serve the promise. And thus, this helps us properly understand how they relate to the gospel. The promise that we are in. The covenant that we are in. And it helps us to relate to them without making the mistake of turning back the clock of redemptive history and equating them with the gospel promise itself. For example, the sacrifices. Why do we no longer offer animal sacrifices? If we set up an altar and offered an animal sacrifice, it Uh, 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 there's a lot of theological things that we could say about this. It it, uh, profanes the, the one offering of Christ. But at a basic interpretive level, it would be turning back the clock in redemptive history as if Christ had not come yet. Because at one point, sacrifices were necessary. They were obedience. Because they pointed to the promise. The promise hadn't come yet. But now that the promise is here, we don't go back to what only pointed to them. So the covenants give us that perspective to look at these things and say, did they serve the promise? Did they serve to point to the promise? Or are they related to the promise itself? And that helps us determine what still applies to us and what doesn't. Any questions at this point? Please don't ask me Whether we can get tattoos or. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So it's important in regards to understanding our relationship with God. It's important regarding how we interpret the Old Testament. Thirdly, here, the covenant is the framework which upholds all these other various themes and aspects of Scripture. We can look at all sorts of themes in Scripture. Obedience, love, prayer, baptism, the Lord's Supper, the church. We can look at all these themes and yet miss how these relational realities are anchored and supported by God's resolve to relate to us by way of covenant. We look at them as isolated, not knowing they're all upheld by the covenantal structure. J.I. Packer gives this analogy. You're looking on a map and you're looking for a particular small little island in the Pacific Ocean. And you're focused and you don't realize that in big bold letters, Pacific Ocean is printed right there on the map. You're, you're so focused on the details that you don't see that the ocean is what kind of supports everything. We don't even think about it because we're focusing on this island. Well, in the same way, we can look at these things and not realize how they're all anchored in one central idea. In fact, I use another analogy here. Jump from one to the other. Here we see a picture of a new construction of a home we see the framework of a house and then we see when it, once it's completed the difference between these is that the framework the framework is necessary and it upholds the building with the finished product. Without, without the framework, you wouldn't get this right here. But looking at this picture, you don't see the framework. It's hidden from view when it when the full beauty of it is revealed. But the framework is what upholds it. So in the same way, scripture, excuse me, the covenant in Scripture is that framework. It's largely hidden from view. It's not the glorious beauty of the central message, Jesus Christ and Him crucified, but it supports. It gives meaning, it gives context, and it's indispensable to a right understanding of it. So the covenant is the framework which upholds all these other themes. Prayer, obedience the sacraments, and so on. Um, Real quickly, we've got about five minutes and then we'll take questions, but uh, a few just random themes. I mentioned a few of these last week. I just want to harp on them again. A few themes and doctrines in Scripture that are directly related to one's view of the covenants. The essential goodness of creation. I think Cody mentioned that last week is upheld when we understand the covenants. The restoration of creation is a covenantal promise and goal. God uses earthly things like bread and wine and water to bind us to Himself by way of covenant. And so He communicates to us that this earth is good. It's not just we're waiting for escape from the earth. We're waiting to go to the sweet by and by and have our spirits freed from this trap of physicality. Creation is good. And when we look at covenant theology, we see that in clarity. Another thing that is upheld by covenant theology is how all people are created in the image of God. And what this means and explains things like why man is prone to self-righteousness in religion. Why man has a guilty conscience. These are directly related to covenant of works. We'll get into this. Why unbelievers do many things, good things in outward conformity to God's law. This is really related to the Noahic covenant. When We understand covenant theology, these things make sense. It gives us a context. These things aren't just abstract ideas that, that, that happen in a vacuum. But we see, oh, okay, covenant theology explains so many things I see out in this world. Covenant is a framework in which justification and sanctification are related but distinguished. This is a matter of standing and falling, the article in which the church stands or falls. We're saved by grace through faith alone, and yet we're saved in order to serve and to walk in obedience. A proper view of the covenants preserves that gospel distinction between justification and sanctification. Again, these are things that I'm going to unpack when we actually get into the covenants. The covenant is also the key to properly understanding baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, many churches today act, at, at least by their practice, right? As if we could just get along just fine without the sacraments. That's just the day we live in. All we need is a nice facility, good programs, an engaging speaker who can communicate well with a common person, and there you have a church. You have such infrequency of observing the Lord's Supper. You have such a shallow, pardon the pun, view of baptism. Mass baptisms, on-the-moment baptisms, and, and just a low view of what these things communicate. Well, the covenant is key to properly understanding these things. And furthermore, I think as well, when you look at baptism and the supper, what does it mean? What's going on? Why do we do it? Who is it for? Your covenant theology will determine this. I mean, just to put my cards on the table here, whether you believe in the baptism of infants, of believers, or you believe that baptism should only follow a profession of faith, your covenant theology is ultimately undergirding it. You may think, well, I don't know anything about covenant theology. I just believe my view on baptism because I see that in the New Testament. Or I believe my view on baptism because that's what I've always been taught. And, and, and I, the covenant theology doesn't even enter the picture. Well, you don't know (laughs) that your view of covenant theology is there, but it is. You have a particular view, you just don't know it. Because covenant theology deals with the relation of Old Testament and New Testament. And whatever your view of Old Testament to New Testament is will determine your baptism. And whatever your baptismal view is, is dependent upon your view of Old Testament and New Testament. That makes sense. So your view of covenant theology will answer your, the question on baptism. That's the root issue. All the other stuff is superfluous. The key, covenant is the key to properly embracing the role of the local church in your life. It helps us see the church as a covenant community discipleship and worship are central to the Christian life. You're saved as part of the people. Christ came to save a people, not an individual. Well, you're saved alongside other people. The sacraments, of course, are corporate, communal um, ordinances to be observed in the local church. So viewing the Christian life through covenant theology shows the importance of the church which is one reason why we have such individualism in the church today because covenant theology has been swept aside seen as unimportant and thus its high view of the local church has been lost alright let's wrap this up and I'll take some questions covenant theology is God's own way of speaking about the Gospel. The promise. From Genesis to Revelation and beyond. That's how God speaks of the Gospel. It's always framed in covenantal language. Seeing the covenant in that language opens up the beauty of how He speaks about the Gospel. And so studying the covenants... I'm going to argue, will deepen your knowledge and appreciation for God and Christ and His church. It will broaden your appreciation of baptism and the supper. It will deepen your sense of wonder and God's sovereignty and care and how Scripture fits together from Genesis to Revelation, all with Christ at the center. You can read Leviticus And not be just overcome with boredom, with awkwardness, or with questions about how does this apply to me? Because reading it through the lens of the covenant, you will see the promise of Christ interwoven and how God is preparing a people for his arrival. So where are we going from here? We are going to look. How God uses the covenant to govern His kingdom. In two weeks, we are going to uh, look at the major covenants in Scripture, a big picture view, and how they all come together to form the central motif. And then following that, we're going to dive into each individual covenant from there. So, next week or two weeks from now, next session, all the covenants at once. And then look at the details. That's where we're going. That's all I got, and that was a lot, I know. I'm trying to cram this into eight weeks. Do I have any questions? Comments? Kim? There's lots of options. I think both of those are true. One of them is that with the rise of fundamentalism, let me make sure this is off. (laughs) I'm going to turn this off to answer questions.